Last week, we saw the dedication of the temple. We really honed in on the joy that the Lord gives. I hope you kind of caught the flavor of that in the text itself. And today we are in Ezra 7. Now, some of you really sharp folks may have wondered by now, we're studying the book of Ezra, and we've been through half the book, and Ezra has not yet shown his face yet. Well, we're going to remedy that today, and we should remember the reason why. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah, perhaps, were actually originally one book, and so it's really a combination of three returns and three rebuilds. In the first return, we have Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. And then much later, we have Nehemiah who rebuilds the wall in the third return. And yet right in the middle is Ezra rebuilding the people, the people of God. How does he do it? Well, you could probably guess by now. He rebuilds them through the word of God. You see, that's the way the people of God are rebuilt So what we'll see in this chapter, we have Ezra's background, his trip to Jerusalem, and Artaxerxes' decree. I want to dive right into the text. We saw Moy just read chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, and we had a very long genealogy. But I want you to note the first three words in particular. It says, now after this. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the word of God. He does it through the the, pan, the pen of men. And what we see here, now after this, what does it mean after this? Well, we don't know if you don't study the history. History is vitally important. Even in studying scripture, it's helpful to have it. It's now been 57 years since chapter six closed, since the temple has been rebuilt. It's been 57 years. Well, what happened in those 57 years? Well, the book of Esther happened. The story of Esther and Mordecai can be placed right between chapter 6 and chapter 7, although we have an entire book about it in the next, uh, after this one, after Nehemiah. So the year now is 458. If you're wondering regarding timeline, that's roughly 458 years, give or take, before Christ was sent to the earth. Uh, And we see Darius in the last chapter is no longer king. Why? because it's been 57 years. And so we see that his son named Xerxes uh, became a ruler. Xerxes, now who's he? Well, maybe you know him by the more biblical Persian name, Ahasuerus. Okay? So maybe you don't. You need to spend time in your Old Testament. Strangely enough, The New Testament is not the only part of the Bible that's inspired by God. Do you know that? We could just close the sermon out right now and go home and read. All right. Well, Darius is no longer king. It's his grandson, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes had a nickname, uh, Longimanus. For those people that know Latin, long hand. His right hand was longer than his left. And some of you go, mine too. But I get the idea it was really a lot longer than his left hand. Uh, This same king, Artaxerxes, is the same king associated with Nehemiah, as we'll see. He's the grandson of Darius. He's the son of Xerxes, once again, also known as Ahasuerus. You know, when you read the book of Esther and you read how the Lord turned the tables 
And God used Esther and Mordecai. And just to be clear, they were being disobedient Jews. They should have been back in the land, but they didn't go. But God had a tremendous grace on them, and they become the heroes of the story because of his grace. But what's interesting, they don't tell you at the end of the book, it didn't really end happily ever after, at least not for Esther's husband, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. And I'm here to tell you the rest of the story. He was murdered. He was murdered in his bed. Uh, It was not happily ever after. He was murdered by his counselors, Artabanus and Aspimetrius, Aspimetrius the eunuch. Um, So what would normally happen is if the king dies or is murdered, well, the firstborn crown prince would become king named Darius. Xerxes named his son Darius after his father, Darius. But he didn't become king in history, in the historical annals. You see, Artabanus and Aspimetrius, these two murderer counselors, they convinced Artaxerxes, stay with me, which was Darius's younger brother. They went to him and said, hey, by the way, I know who killed your dad. What? Who killed my dad? It's your older brother, Darius. And so Artaxerxes had his brother, uh, older brother arrested and then executed. Well, then Artaxerxes is now king, only to find out much later that actually these two counselors had lied to him and they were the ones who had murdered his dead. Artabanus was killed by the sword. Aspimetrius, the other counselor who killed his dad, oh, he had a much more interesting death. He was confined to a bathtub and he was eaten by insects. So remember that during the Texas summer heat. (laughs) At least you're not confined to a bathtub, okay? Ezra, who's he? Well, it's a shortened form of Azariah. It's a great name. Uh, Azariah means the Lord helps. And we have so much genealogy here. Um, Just to be clear, not all of those uh, names, uh, uh, some of those names are omitted. They did this from time to time in Jewish genealogy. There's no reason to put them all in there. But why is the genealogy here? Well, it's to prove that Ezra is qualified as a priest to teach God's word. You see, Ezra is not an American where we could get to choose what we want to do when we grow up. No, in Jewish society, you couldn't choose to become a priest. You had to be born into the line of priests. And so you will see the last name, the son of Aaron, the chief priest in verse 5. And it's making it very clear to the reader what? This man is qualified to be a priest And we're going to see he's not just qualified by birth, but also training. He's a scribe. It's the Hebrew word sofar. And a scribe was one who studies, copies, and interprets scripture. Indeed, Ezra was the first great scribe, as Jewish history will reveal. We see Jesus even commending scribes in Matthew 23, 34. He says, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of you, they will kill. Some of you will kill and crucify. And some of, uh, some of them, they will be scourged in the synagogues and you will persecute from city to city. So the scribes were the good guys. Or were they? Some of you think, wait a second, Jesus didn't always say nice things about scribes and Pharisees. You see what happened. The Pharisees started off good and the scribes started off well. But the problem is they gave into legalism with time. 
They didn't focus on the inside. They focused on this outward uh, externals. And so by the time of Jesus, he's saying, these, these, the good guys became the bad guys. And note that as Christians, we need to be reminded of that as well. When we start falling into legalism, uh, instead of talking about the spirit of truth, what Jesus requires of us, we, we ourselves can fall into that as well. I digress. Uh, this Ezra character, he was really the, considered the second Moses. Remember Moses transcribed the first five books of the Bible by the Holy Spirit? We see Ezra, he collected the copies of the law and then put the prophetic, the historical, the poetic books all in the canon together. Now, just to be clear, he didn't decide what was gonna be in the scriptures. No, no, God is the one that decided that. But Ezra recognized, as well as the other uh, priests of that time, what was inspired breathed out by God. And he compiled them. So the reason why we have them in the way we do is really because of Ezra, according to Jewish history. So continuing on, Ezra is primarily a teacher and a scribe, and yet God is going to call him to a huge place of leadership. Did he want this role of leadership? I don't know, but he accepted it. And uh, when you think of who God sometimes calls to leadership, it's just strange, isn't it? We see in Galatians 2, those men that were reputed to be pillars of the church. We have James, the half-brother of Jesus, and you say, well, that's, that would make sense that he was leader. Really? James, as well of all the brothers of Jesus Christ, wanted nothing to do with him in his earthly ministry. They rejected him completely. And now, by God's grace, the Lord saved James after the resurrection of Christ, and he he sees Christ in all his glory, and he believes. We also have James and John, who are fishermen. Now, folks, please work with me here. You've got two men that are fishermen, two brothers, and a guy that rejected Christ throughout his earthly ministry, and they are now pillars in the church. And you know who is having to report to them? Ex-Pharisees that now believe that Jesus really was the Christ. I mean, God flips things all the time in our lives, does he not? John Calvin, to me, is a good example of this. David Mathis wrote a, a book about him, and he, he writes this. Um, Having published his book called The Institutes of the Christian Faith, which was immediately successful, 26-year-old John Calvin left Basel, still a fugitive from France in the summer of 1536, to make for Strasbourg, where he could pursue a life of study and writing, look up here, that's all he wanted to do. He just wanted to be a theologian. He doesn't want to ever teach. He just wants to write. He doesn't want to lead. He just wants to write. Well, he went uh, to do this. Uh, however, Calvin and his traveling companions, including his brother Antoine, discovered that the direct way between Basel and Strasbourg was blocked by the troops of Charles V as he was fighting France. So Calvin and company had to follow an indirect route, which meant stopping for a night, just a single night in Geneva. That evening, word got to a man named William Farrell that the famed writer of the Institutes was staying in town. Farrell was the first reformer of Geneva. He was the pioneer who fought to have the city become officially Protestant in May of 1536. But now, a year in, he needed help badly. And Calvin's mix of gifts seemed to complement Farrell's perfectly. 
So Pharaoh descended upon Calvin and pled that he stay in Geneva and partner with him in bringing the Reformation there into fullness. Calvin resisted, saying no. He saw himself more as an academic than a pastor. He longed to hide away in Strasbourg and write books that would help the Reformation across Europe. When he saw that he was making no headway with Calvin, Pharaoh pronounced a curse, damning Calvin's quiet studies in Strasbourg when, he, when the need was so acute in Geneva. Calvin wrote about it in his own words when he said, upon my rejection of Pharaoh, uh, he said, Pharaoh burned with a marvelous zeal to advance the gospel, and he went out of his way to keep me. <laughs> Pharaoh fixed his eyes on the young man Calvin. He placed his hand on his head and spoke with a voice of thunder. May God curse you, and your studies, if you do not join me here in the work he has called you to. Now, I wouldn't suggest normally that line of exhortation, but the Lord used it. Uh, Calvin writes later, he was so scared, he knew he had to stay put, and God used him in a remarkable way. Verse six and seven. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked. And by the way, we don't have a record of his asking, but we know that he did because the king granted it all to him. Note the reason why, verse six, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Okay, here we see Ezra. He's not just a scribe, but he is considered as skilled in the law of Moses. In the Hebrew, it means he was swift or ready. It really implies that Ezra was quick to understand the word of God. And we know that that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and yet we also see something about Ezra. He takes the time to study the word of God. So it's this divine sovereignty, human responsibility motif we'll see throughout this chapter. So notice this, the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. That phrase, the hand of the Lord his God was on him, we see six times in chapter seven and chapter eight. And it's very strategic as written by the Holy Spirit. And it shows you that once again, God is sovereign and yet we see Ezra going, but what does the Bible say? I need to pursue it. And the Lord weds these together. Verse eight through 10, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, you might be wondering the fifth month, when is that? That's the month of Nisan. It's late March, early April. And they left the first of the first month. So it took them four months. And you go, why are they telling you the month? Well, remember, going back to Israel from the land of Babylon, it was supposed to be a second exodus. You could probably guess when the children of Israel left Egypt for the promised land. First month, same time, at the time of the Passover. Like I said, it took them four months. Uh, it's roughly 600 miles as a crow flies, but
but they traveled 900 miles to get there. Why would they add 300 miles? No, I should probably ask your fifth grader, perhaps. Why add 300 miles? It's because of something that we know as the fertile crescent. I heard some of y'all. Good. It was a dad, I think. It's impressive. (laughs) Fertile crescent. Yeah, they had to travel the Euphrates River. If not, you're going straight across the desert. You won't make it. It's much easier to go the other route. The good hand of the Lord as God was on him. There it is again. Now, remember, let's just take these out of the pages of Scripture and put some shoe leather on this. Do you all look at success that way? Whatever may happen, the good hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. If you're healthy today, are your kids obedient? Is there marital harmony? Beware. Some of us, when those things start to go well, we go, well, I've read a really good book on that. Or, you know, I've just started to do this and it's made all the difference. Beware, spiritual pride seeps in underneath the crack of the door. We don't even know it's all over us pretty quick. No, you see, at the end of the day, we want to share God's glory. Let's be honest, we want to steal God's glory. And so when we consider whatever success, quote unquote, we have in our life, it's because the good hand of the Lord was on us. And you could even ask the other question, What if it doesn't go well? I'm not healthy. The kids are wild. The marriage is hard. What do you say then? You say the same thing. The good hand of the Lord is on me. How could you say that, Jeff? Because we would know Romans 8, 28, that some things work together. Oh, no, that's not right. And we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Continuing on, we have Ezra, and he sets his heart. He sets his heart to do three things, and this is really the pattern for us as well. Number one, to study the law of the Lord. In particular, it would be the first five books, the Pentateuch. Some, not some, many describe the Old Testament law as boring, negative, and yet I would say no. Romans 7.12 makes it clear the law is holy, And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Y'all want to know the problem with Old Testament law? It's the people. (laughs) It's the people. That's that's the problem. We've always been sinful people. The Old Testament law is not bad. Uh, The Old Testament doesn't even describe the law as a negative document, but rather a guide for what could be a healthy, well-ordered society, as Israel was when they followed the law. Believe it or not, I know you might find this hard to believe now, but in the past, the United States actually used Scripture as a guide for our laws, not to replicate the Old Testament law. To be clear, I'm not a theonomist, uh, and yet I will tell you this, there's some, there's some good guidelines for us here that we have forsook as a nation. A more personal note to think of it like this, studying the law of the Lord, do you Would you be a person, if I could put you up to a lie detector test and say, let me ask you a few questions. Do you take time to study the word? You'd find yourself going, can I take this machine off, please? You see, the Bible calls us to study the law of the Lord. There's a, um, oh, uh, a ministry out there called the Navigators, and they're really, they push the study of the word. As a matter of fact, they'll have something called the word hand, and if you find this helpful, then use it. Uh, pinky is hearing, 
because you only supposedly remember about 5% of what you hear is what they say. And then you've got reading, which you could remember a little bit more. Uh, Studying would be this one. Uh, We have also memorizing. And what do you think the last one is that touches all the fingers? Meditating. Meditating. Yeah, so question. Do you study the law of the Lord? When I say you study, do you study the word? Let me ask you this. What would your kids say about you? Ooh. Continuing on, it's not just enough to study it, but to practice or to do it, to do it. Not just knowledge, although knowledge is vitally important. We don't, we don't downplay uh, that, but to practice it. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What are you deceiving yourselves? You're deceiving yourselves thinking that you're a godly person because you know the Bible, that you're not a godly person because you don't practice it. Jesus condemns this. John 13, 17, as he's done washing the feet of his apostles, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's the blessing from doing, but you don't You can't do it if you don't know it. It works together. And then finally, the third aspect we have of Ezra is to teach it. Literally, it means in the Hebrew to to seek, to yearn for it. It reminds me of 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes long for what? Long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If, what? You've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Question, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? You betcha. Yes, you have. So the question is, are you longing for it? And some people would say, well, I'm waiting for the Spirit to kind of work in me. Did you not hear what I just said? 1 Peter 2, 2, it's a command, long for it, but I don't long for it. Then you beg God, you beg him to give you a longing for his word. Can he do that? Yes, he can, and he does. So as I mentioned, that's the pattern for every believer. You study, you practice, you teach. And some would say, well, I don't have, I don't have kids. Do you have niece and nephews? Do you have neighborhood kids in the area? I'm not saying all of us are called to the gift of teaching, but what I'm saying is all of us are called to make disciples which is talking to people about Jesus Christ and then teaching them to obey that all he's commanded us. So note, one of the commentators writes this, named, uh, his name is Kidner. He writes this, Ezra is a model reformer in that what he taught, he had first lived. And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the scriptures. Now, be careful. Can we get these in reverse order? Yes, we can. Some churches become, uh, in the way it works in many churches, you become a believer and then you preach the next Sunday. (sighs) Listen, uh, just to be clear, a new believer can and, quote, should proclaim the gospel after he becomes a believer. Yes, yes, he should. Of course, we should always work to be better evangelists. But when it comes to teaching, we need to take our time. I think we have something called Awana here. Any of you kids in Awana? Approved workmen are not ashamed. That comes from 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Here it is. Rightly handling the word of truth. So we study, we practice, we teach. 
And would you know what he teaches? The statutes and ordinances in Israel. In another sense, we would say, what is he teaching? He's teaching the word of God. You see, God's revelation as it is passed down from one generation to the next is exactly what we should be doing. Beware, I'm telling y'all what, beware when you start to go to somebody who is teaching and you go, they're so novel in their approach. It's, it's like nothing I've ever heard before. Beware. I've often heard it said before, if it's new, it may not be true. And if it's true, it's not new. My job here and the jobs of any teacher here at Grace is we just want to hand over what's been taught to us. We have different ways of doing it, but at the end of the day, we're not novel. I don't want to be novel. I just want to be faithful. You see, much of what we do here at Grace is teaching. We don't make apologies for that. If somebody says, y'all do so much teaching there, I'm going to say, thanks. I love to hear that. Because the Bible is clear, a big way to grow in the Christian life, not the only way, but one of the big ways to grow is the study of God's word. First Peter 2, 2, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So, and we don't just teach the facts, although important. We also wanna teach training in righteousness. How can we better trust and obey the Lord? How do you deal with cultural issues? We need to answer that here at Grace, and we do. But we're always gonna go back to what does the Bible say. And if we're considered old-fashioned, praise God for it. So we're going to see here in this long letter, this letter from King Artaxerxes contains five good gifts to the Jews, five good gifts to the Jews. And I'll just run through them quickly. Uh, number one, it allows Ezra to go to Jerusalem and make sure God's laws are being obeyed. A pagan king is going to send somebody to make sure that the Jewish laws are obeyed? Yes, and I'm going to explain that in a bit. Number two, supplies money to buy sacrifices and temple vessels. Number three, it commands treasurers in the provinces to give supplies to Ezra. It's going to command other countries, you have to support the Jews. <laughs> Number four, it exempts all temple officials from being taxed. And finally, number five, it authorizes Ezra to set up a court system and to teach the laws to the people. Why is a pagan king so interested in the people, the Jews, knowing their Bibles? Why? We're going to see. Verse 11 through 20, this is a long text. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem." With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. 
whatever, verse 18, seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Wow. Does it sound a little gracious, perhaps? I mean, he's giving them money, uh, bowls. He wants them to spend money on all the sacrifices. But keep in mind, this is how the Persians, by and large, dealt with conquered people's religions. They wanted them to go back to their religions and embrace it. Um, we're going to see in just a moment the big, biggest reason why is politics. Because two to three years before Ezra 7 was written, guess what happened? A huge rebellion in Egypt with the Greeks. And they, the Persia needed a strong force in that part of their empire to be, oh, shall I say it, akin to them, loyal to them. So just to point out a few aspects about this uh, letter, he uses the term king of kings. That may not sit well with you, but that's the way the Persians referred to themselves. We are the king of kings. Uh, the Greeks never used that language, but Persians did. Uh, it refers to Ezra as the scribe. He, Ezra, catch this, is not a governor, but he has tremendous political power, as we'll see, even as a scribe. Uh, he encourages the Jews to freely go. He mentions the seven counselors. Who are they, Jeff? I'm glad you asked. They are the most trusted advisors made up of the seven leading families of Persia. They had full access to the king. We actually see them also in the book of Esther, if you'd study that as well. Uh, And he says, I want you to make inquiries. What the king wants to do is to make sure that the Jews are obeying the laws of the Bible. Why is the king so interested in everybody following the Bible? If he's a pagan, well, because the king understands something that most Americans don't fully grasp, and that is this. It is extremely hard for religious pluralism to work because you always have one side that's grasping for power or to be in charge. And if you say, well, why can't we all just be the same? The problem is, is there's huge uh, conflict in what we believe. You're seeing this in our country where you're disagreeing over the fundamentals And a nation divided against itself, well, you know the rest of that phrase. It doesn't work very well. So he's going to encourage sacrifice. He's going to encourage them to follow the Old Testament law. And we're going to see, I'll tell you a little bit about this rebellion that took place in Egypt, why they need such a strong group in that area of Judah. Verse 21 through 24, And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons." We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on anyone of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Here we have the king ordering the treasurers who are beyond the river. That means beyond the Euphrates River where 
the former countries of Israel and Judah and Egypt are. Um, you take care of them, is what he's saying. You provide them all the money they need, all the supplies. Um, by the way, once again, it's not just done. This kindness is not just done to the Jews. We see Darius, who is Artaxerxes' grandfather, did this for the followers of the god Apollo. As we know, it's not a real god, pagan god, but they did this. The Persians, this is the way they handled things. Um, so he's offering up to this incredible large amounts of money. He says they can have as much as 100 talents of silver. That is three and three-fourths tons of silver. We have up to 380 bushels or 480 gallons of wine and oil. In verse 23, he says, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest, I think you caught this, didn't you? Lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. You see, at the end of the day, Artaxerxes is looking out for himself. He wants his dynasty to flourish. He wants the gods to be happy no matter where they might be. And also, he was also very aware that his dad was murdered. So he's thinking, let's, let's please all the gods. And that's what he seeks to do. Verse 25 and 26, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation or his goods or imprisonment. I want to point a couple of things out here. He has already said this now twice. Ezra, the wisdom of God that is in your, did you catch it? It's in your hand. It's in your hand. Wisdom in the Old Testament can be described as being uh, according to the hands. I think you know this if you read Psalm 78, verse 72. David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with literally the understanding of his hands. Hands are what we, we move things, we push things, we fix things. And so that's the point is that's kind of where the wisdom is found in the hands or kind of ascribed to the hands. So as I mentioned before, is Artaxerxes a believer in the one true God? He's so pushing the Jewish law, the, the Bible. No, he's not. We see this as simply as God's grace, but also politics. Let me tell you what had happened in the Persian empire at that particular time. Uh, one of the commentators writes, he says, in 460 BC, the confederation of Greek cities under Athenian leadership sent a fleet of 200 war galleys against Persia. This fleet sailed to Egypt, gained a great victory over the Persian army there and captured Memphis in the autumn of 459. This placed the coast of Palestine and Phoenicia into Greek hands now in 458, immediately after the fall of Memphis, Egypt, which fell to the Greeks, Ezra the Judean scribe was sent to Judea to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem and to recognize and strengthen this traditional enemy of the Philistines. From the point of view of the Persians, a strong pro-Persian Judea was a major threat to the Greek coastal Lifeline, And as long as the Greeks dominated the coast and Egypt, he supported a strong Judean province headed by a Judean Persian official and peopled by a pro-Persian population. Say that 
five times. Um, most of whose families were hostages in Babylon and Persia. So does this make sense now? God so used a king like Artaxerxes who's scared to send the Jews back. And not only send them back, but you obey the law. We gotta, we gotta be in lockstep with y'all. Not that this Persian king obeyed the law. No, he had his own Persian laws. He could care less about the scriptures, but he knew Ezra cared about the scriptures and he knew the Judean people would thrive under the scriptures. He'd heard enough. He knew the stories. So that's what happens. Finally, verse 27 and 28, Ezra can write, blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love, which is that Hebrew word chesed, before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. I think you see it, don't you? At the very end of that verse, this divine sovereignty, human responsibility, they work together. They're not enemies. And he's saying, the hand of the Lord was on me. And so what did I do? I gathered. I worked. And he took the leading men with him. But note what Ezra describes this whole production about. It's about beautifying the house of the Lord. The second temple now had been there for almost 60 years. It needed repairs. It needed beautifying. And so he can say, the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. At the end of the day, who does Ezra give glory to? The king? No. The true king of kings, the God of heaven. He did it. And yet at the same time, Ezra went and he asked and what does he ultimately want to do? He wants to beautify the house of the Lord. Now, this is going to get personal. In the New Testament, not what is the house of the Lord, but who is the house of the Lord? House of the Lord is a temple. We are the temple of God. Ezra is a scribe. What is he going to do for the house of the Lord? He's going to teach, he's going to scribe. What is Nehemiah going to do? He's going to build a wall. Question, New Testament believer, who or what service is the Lord laying on your heart to do to beautify the house of the Lord? Not referring to this building, although certainly we love the folks that help out there. But who or what service is the Lord given you to do? Some of you already have that, and some of you go, well, I take care of my family. Bad answer. Just to be clear, it is important for you to take care of your family, but don't ever say that's your ministry. You know what it is? I'm gonna qualify that for you. It's your first ministry. And it is vitally important as your first ministry. It doesn't stop there, does it? And I would say also beware. I've fallen into this. Oh my goodness, I'll tell you a story. I was serving at a church with two men in particular, Man number one was discipling many young men, and he was doing it well. The second man was not discipling all those men, but he was doing much service at the church. He was working actually a lot on the, on the building, fixing the building, painting, cleaning. He was doing chores for other folks that were falling on hard times. He did it all. But what was fascinating with time is the first guy who was discipling many 
got upset because he did not believe the second guy was discipling enough younger men. And of course, he thought his service was best. You see how we taint God's good gifts of work? And we start to judge others and we're like, yeah, but they're not doing what I'm doing. So I would just, can I give you some counsel on this as we seek as a body of Christ to beautify the house of the Lord? Before I do, just to be clear, are we called to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, then teaching to obey all that Christ has commanded us? Yes, but we're not all gonna look the same. We're not supposed to. So I'll just give you a few points of advice. Number one, I beg of you, please don't do what I've done so often. Do not look at others, what they are doing, what they are not doing. It looks different for different people. Why does it look so different? (laughs) I'll tell you why, and I think you know the answer. We are called the, get here, body of Christ. Fingers do things differently than toes. They do things differently than the stomach and the face and everything else. It's all different, but it's meant to do what? Work together, not not judge each other. Ezra was a gifted scribe. I do not know how the Lord has gifted you this morning, but I know, according to Scripture, he has uniquely gifted you for the body of Christ. And yet I will encourage you before you start looking around, trying to figure out, focus on what what is my gifting? What is my gifting? No, I need really for us all to consider focusing on what or who God is putting before you. Really, the, 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 the major tenor of scripture is not figure out your gift. It's not, not at all. I'm not discounting that, but what the major key of scripture that keeps pounding over and over again is great commandment, great commission living, loving Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. John 15, especially the brethren and making disciples. Great commandment, great commission. It's all over the New Testament. That's the tenor. So don't look at others. Look at what's right in front of you. And by the way, just to, not to discount you moms that are like, I've got 15 kids. And some of you do, I think here. You got enough for now, okay? It is your first ministry. You got it, okay? I'm not gonna put pressure on you. No, you need to be involved in this and this. It's vitally important for you to take care of your first ministry and, and dads as well. Let's not, let's not forsake that either. So I just wanted to challenge you a little bit. Number two, ask the Lord to show you who you should serve and or what you should be doing. It's so interesting. We go to test instead of going to the one who, who wrote the whole script. Ask the Lord, Lord, show me. Make it clear. I'm really dense and the Lord will show you. And finally, at the end of the day though, number three, go forward. Go forward knowing that the good hand of the Lord is upon you. The good hand of the Lord is upon you. He's gonna work these things out. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is a great guide. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, I would say for many of you in here, not just some, but perhaps even many, I'll agree with Oz Guinness who said this, we are not primarily called to do something or go somewhere. We are called to someone. Perhaps not just some, but even many in here have heard the name of Jesus over and over again for years, but you never actually met him. 
You don't actually know that, that the God-man sent by the Father to become the great shepherd of the sheep came here to die for your sin, not just ours, but yours. You see, the way it works is like this. Your sin is an offense to God. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that's displeasing to the Lord. The news gets worse. Your sin leads to death, not just physical death, because we all die without the Lord's return, but, but eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. It's real, folks. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying it's real. Jesus speaks more about hell than he does heaven. But you know, God demonstrates his own love towards us, Romans 5, 8, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So my encouragement to you today is, is, maybe, is maybe not to, a, to what your next ministry should do or, or person. Maybe it's just going straight to the great shepherd of the sheep today and admitting, admitting to him the only thing you can bring before him is a huge, massive bag of sin that's on your back and you can never pay for it. You can never pay for it but he has paid for sin. So come to him today. Close with a story, just as a way to encourage you as we seek to beautify the house of God by the Lord's sovereignty and our responsibility. Howard Hendricks, professor at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. He came from a broken home in Philadelphia. Neither of his parents were believers, neither cared about his spiritual condition. There was a tiny church in Hendricks' neighborhood that sought to affect their community for Christ. One of the men named Walt was out on a Saturday morning and he saw Hendrix along with uh, other nine and 10-year-old boys playing marbles on the sidewalk. He asked him, hey, son, how would you like to go to Sunday school? Hendrix tells the rest of the story. That was an unfortunate question, he said. To my mind, anything that had the word school in it had to be bad news. <laughs> so I shook my head, no, but Walt was just getting started. How would you like to play marbles? He asked, squatting down. Sure, I replied, quickly setting up the game. As the best marble player on the block, I felt supremely confident that I could whip this challenger fairly easy. Would you believe he beat me every single game? In fact, he captured every marble I had. In the process, he also captured my heart. I may have lost a game and a bit of pride that day, but I gained something infinitely more important, the friendship of a man who cared. A big man, an older man, a man who literally came down to my level by kneeling to play a game of marbles. From then on, wherever Walt was, that's where I wanted to be. Walt built into my life over the next several years in a way that marked me forever. He used to take me and the other boys in a Sunday school out uh, hiking. I've never, I'll never forget those times. He had, a, he had a bad heart, and I'm sure we didn't do it any good running up all and down the woods the way we did, but he didn't seem to mind because he cared. In fact, he was probably the first person to show me unconditional love. He was a model of faithfulness as well. I can't remember a time when he ever showed up to his Sunday school class unprepared. Not that he was the most exciting teacher in the world. In, in fact, he had almost no training for that, but he was real. He found ways to involve us boys in the learning process, an approach that made a lasting contribution to my own style of teaching. Overall, Walt incarnated Christ for me, and not only for me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood, nine of whom also came from broken homes. Remarkably, 11 of us went on to pursue careers as vocational workers, which is ironic, given the fact that Walt himself completed school only through the sixth grade. 
Folks, God is sovereign. Ephesians 2.10, he's got the pathway for you to walk. And that's when I would also say you're responsible. So I would encourage you by the power of the spirit, he has called you to know his word, study his word, live it out. And then after that, just go on your day. Great commandment, great commission, living for the glory of Christ. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes. Let's go. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in our lives, Lord. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if anybody leaves here somehow thinking that I have called them to do a work on their own, God forbid that I ever speak another word. Lord, I pray that you would help them to realize that ultimately with Christ, all things are possible. And you've got exciting work ahead of us, hard work. And we pray as believers that we would pursue it, whatever station of life we might find ourselves. Lord, help us not to walk away feeling somehow like, oh, I'm such a wretch. Because here's the deal. We are all wretches. We don't back away from that. But we know that in Christ, we are new creations. And we are saints of God. And so we just pray that you would help us to just walk in what you have already set before our way. And I pray for anybody in here who does not yet know Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, they are still wandering. Lord, grant them that today by your power and by your grace. In your son's name we pray it, amen.